Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio's Progressive News Network. Um, I'm your host tonight, Janine Moloff. Uh, Brooke Hines is still on hiatus right now, and and we, you know, can't wait to get her back. But right now, um, we have several things on the burner tonight. So. As our advert said this week, uh, Brooke is going to contribute. She pre-recorded a piece uh, regarding the ongoing COVID crisis. And then as soon as she's done with that, I'll play that first, and then we'll get into the justice report. And we have a couple of things on our justice report, actually. First of all, things on the ground change very quickly. So sometimes what I have to do on the show might not always match the advert, uh, and that can't be helped. So here, you know, all over the country, we have GOP legislatures and governors that are doing their best to make sure that COVID spreads as much as possible. And here in Missouri, the GOP governor, Mike Parson, is working very hard. He's going to he's going to call a special session of the Missouri legislature to fight. President Biden's vaccine uh, executive order, which he's calling a mandate. So we're going to get into that, and then we'll get into our big story, which is, again, the Texas abortion law, and then how that particular law poses a direct threat to many established rights that we enjoy in the Bill of Rights. And this is a based on a piece, an op-ed written by the dean of UC Berkeley Law School, Erwin Shermerinsky. Uh, I've quoted Professor Shermerinsky before. He gives it to you straight, and we're talking brilliant analysis. So this is the stealth danger, the stealth attack by the GOP and their buddies to attack what's left of the Bill of Rights. Then at the very tail end of the program, I will talk about the looming march in D.C. next Saturday, they call it Justice for Ashley, uh, save, our, save Our Country, all this other nonsense. And again, this is a march which is meant to protest the, um, basically the uh, arrest of insurrectionists from January 6th. And uh, many of the groups that are going to be in attendance are white supremacists, groups, which, yes, are domestic terrorists, in my opinion, namely the Proud Boys, uh, as well as some others. So we will talk about that briefly and definitely more on that subject next week, the day after the protest. So first, we're going to start this up with a piece that Brooke did for us. Here we go. Hey there, and welcome to the Lefty Lounge, part of PNN. Uh, this is Brooke Hines, and I have a big segment for you tonight. Uh, wow, it's been such a newsy, weird weekend. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot to talk about. I'm a, I'm focused on COVID this week and COVID reporting and uh, all things having to do with COVID because uh, 
you know, we're getting back to school and people are starting to deal with, you know, immediate quarantines. In uh, South Florida, there were 10 teachers die already from the virus. And, you know, I, I, I just, this is, I think, the most important thing that's going on right now. So I'm, I'm staying on, on target. Stay on target. Uh, let's talk about the news. Earlier this year, uh, on January 21, Axios reported that trust in media hits a new crisis low. Not just a new low, but a, but a new crisis low. Uh, trust in traditional media has declined so low. How low has it declined? Um, that news professionals are determined to do something about it. Oh, so it's it's just so bad that they might actually act on it. Uh, this is Axios. Take that into account. The way that this is written is kind of funny. It starts out with why it matters. Faith in society's central institutions, especially government and the media, is the glue that holds society together. That glue was visibly dissolving a decade ago and has now, for many millions of Americans, disappeared entirely. By the numbers, for the first time ever, fewer than half of all Americans have trust in traditional media, according to data from Edelman's annual trust barometer shared exclusively with Axios. Trust in social media has it hit an all-time low of 27%. Um, 56% of Americans agree with the statement that, quote, journalists and reporters are purposely trying to mislead people. Uh, they are saying things that they know are false or gross exaggerations. I wonder, I wonder what set people off. I wonder if that might be, you know, have to do with a few years of, of Russiagate. Fifty-eight percent think that quote most news organizations are more concerned with supporting an ideology or political position than with informing the public. <gasps> oh my God. When Edelman repolled Americans after the election, the figures had deteriorated even further, with 57% of Democrats trusting the media and only 18% of Republicans. You know, which is, that's actually kind of weird because there's a lot more right-wing media than there is left-wing media. So right-wingers can actually go and, you know, find all kinds of... Uh, print publications and broadcast publications and, you know, all that sort of thing. It's way more uh, supported on the right than it is on the left. And if you've read my uh, essay on glamping, neoliberals glamping in Death Valley, you might understand, like, how we got here. You know, the Daily Kos, the, the uh, founders and big poobahs with Daily Kos, which I assumed considered itself an a, a left alternative media space uh you know i went to this uh, uh soiree of these people out in the desert in death valley to get away from all of the telephone lines and the whatever i guess they're afraid of 5g or something they're afraid of the russians uh, uh spying on us and so we had to meet out in the desert and cast off our uh, electronic devices as we met with each other and, and, and learn about how they had a plan. Daily Co's, along with some other unnamed people, had a plan 
for how they were going to take back political control, and it had to do with the media, but there there wasn't going to be any media. So I attended the media breakout session at the soiree, and uh, and it really wasn't a give and take. There was one person there from Daily Coast who was just laying down the law and saying, well, we are absolutely not supporting any alternative left media outlets. We're not going to, you know, I was saying, you know, we should try to push money towards people who are uh, producing left journalism. No, 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 no. We have our own. We've already decided on this. We have our own approach to this. We are getting celebrities and YouTube influencers, especially young teenagers and people in, in music spaces, to just uh, repeat on tw- on social media, retweet or or repost on Instagram. I don't think anybody is even f- fooling with Facebook anymore, even back then. And uh, they were just going to have these celebrities and these young people just parrot whatever they gave them. And you know that's you could see how that was in effect for the last few years. And and we're we're riding the remnants of this right now as we're fighting off COVID because we've still got all of these. Uh, approaches to media uh, on on the ostensible left. And when I talk about Daily Coast, I don't consider them a left space at all. They're a um, very traditional liberal space and much more likely to form a red-brown alliance with uh, Republicans and uh, especially, you know, Lincoln Project types than than anybody on the um, traditional left. You know, they are institutional leftists. Institutional leftists have the uh, or liberals have uh, are are monetarily financially supported by the same donor base that supports the uh, candidates that that we all oppose. So there's that. But this trust in media thing really came to a head this weekend. So it's kind of funny. Yesterday there was this article. Uh, circulating all over social media and it was Rolling Stone Rolling Stone was was out there with uh, this headline that screamed gunshot victims left waiting as horse dewormer overdoses overwhelm Oklahoma hospitals doctor says and then the subhead the ERs are so backed up that gunshot victims are having hard times getting to facilities where they can get definitive care and be treated dr jason mcelier mcelier said how do you pronounce his name and then here's the lead to the story the rise in people using ivermectin an antiparasitic drug usually reserved for deworming horses or livestock as a treatment for preventative covid-19 has emergency rooms so backed up that gunshot victims are having hard times getting to access facilities an emergency room doctor in oklahoma said and then this story has been picked up by Rachel Maddow and all the usual, you know, shit libs on on Twitter. And The Guardian ran a piece. Here it is. Oklahoma hospitals deluged by ivermectin overdoses, doctor says. And just goes on and on and on. And, uh, okay, funny thing about this story uh, The hospital actually had something to say about this. Now, check this out. 
This is a message from the administration of Northeastern Health System Sequoia. This is the hospital in Oklahoma that is uh, you know, being talked about by this supposed doctor. Uh, although Dr. McElier is not an employee of NHS Sequoia, he is affiliated with a medical staffing group that provides coverage for our emergency room. With that said, this doctor has not worked at our uh, Salsa location in over two months. NHS Sequoia has not treated any patients due to complications taking ivermectin. This includes not treating any patients for ivermectin overdose. All patients who have visited our emergency room have received medical attention as appropriate. Our hospital has not had to turn away any patients seeking medical care. We want to reassure our community that our staff is working hard to provide health care to all patients. We appreciate this opportunity to clarify this issue, and as always, we value our community's support. So that came out after all of these other articles came out and and you know what a what a real uh you know main what I would expect from a mainstream you know like an institutional mainstream kind of publication what I would expect them to do is to retract and correct their story but you know what you know what they're actually doing is is not that they're totally not retracting their stories uh, instead rolling stone appended an update and this just floors me because they they append an update to the story and they leave their crap story up there for everyone to laugh at i mean you know so what whatever let, let them you know make themselves look like fools even more um but here's the update that they appended to their story. And this is a story that kicked off this whole firestorm that went across social media yesterday. Here's what Rolling Stone has to say about their boo-boo. Update. Northeastern Hospital System Sequoia issued a statement. Uh, although Dr. Jason McElia is not an employee of NHS Sequoia, he is affiliated with the group, blah, blah, blah. With that said, this is exactly what the, the other piece said. Uh, this is, And that they're were no patients currently being treated due to complications to, uh, from having taken ivermectin, including treating patients for an overdose of ivermectin. All patients, this is exactly what the hospital said. And it refutes every single thing in their article, and, and yet they leave the article up. It's absolutely amazing. So what's going on here? I'm just going to share with you a few choice tweets. Uh, this is from uh, at NYC Southpaw. That's Southpaw on Twitter. It's a big uh, liberal account. Uh, quote, Dr. McElia says patients are packing his eastern and southeastern Oklahoma hospitals after taking ivermectin doses meant for full-size horse. And then you have Rachel Maddow, quote, patients overdosing on ivermectin backing up rural Oklahoma hospitals and ambulances. Quote, it's one of the scariest things I've heard of and seen is people coming in with vision loss. So they're very specifically saying that, that people are being blinded by 
ivermectin overdoses when the hospital is actually saying that no one there is even being treated for anything having to do with ivermectin. Newsweek put out a, a tweet, and they said an emergency room physician of, uh, said that gunshot victims are having trouble getting ER beds due to an overflow of people sick from taking ivermectin to fight COVID-19. And then you have the New York Daily News. Same thing. Hospitals in Oklahoma are being overwhelmed with patients overdosing on ivermectin, an anti-parasitical treatment commonly used in farm animals. All righty. So there you go. So, so you know, anyone who has fallen for the propaganda here is, I, I, I mean, I, 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 number one, have compassion for, uh, you know, people who are just trying to do the right thing and wanting our country and our people and the, and the communities in which we live to just do the right thing and help save lives that's what that's all anybody wants and if you're looking for a, a, an issue of regulatory capture or of uh uh, money getting in this kind of process, what I would look towards is, you know, how many pharmaceutical ads you might see in the New York Daily News or Newsweek or Rolling Stone or on MSNBC. And how many of those ads are for, you know, a, a drug that is a generic that is from, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago that is out of patent. You know, the, the, the doctor who created it, uh, discovered it, has already won his Nobel Prize, and it's in the public domain. They're not making money off of that kind of drug. Uh, just for your information, uh, Merck initially, uh, when it was a new drug, initially handled ivermectin. Now they only control 1% of the production of ivermectin in the United States, and uh, even though they put out some information saying that we have drastically slowed our production of ivermectin, that's not going to impact uh, people being able to get ivermectin because Merck hasn't produced ivermectin in any quantity for quite some time. They have moved on. Uh, they have a lot to deal with already, you know, with other things that are in their pipeline. They have big biologicals. They have very expensive uh, cancer treatments and other things that they are focused on that are actually making money for the company. So while I don't think you're going to find big ivermectin lobby uh, 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 pulling the arms of big tech and big media, uh, I think you're very likely to see other parts of the pharmaceutical industry and the medical association and all of these vast interests. I'm, I'm sure you're seeing them bending the ears of of these uh, institutions, you know, saying that we control a lot of your budget through our advertising. We control a lot of your campaign donations if you're a, a member of Congress, uh, and, and so on and so forth. They're reminding people of the power that they have, and you see 
the result of this in, you know, the, the, the similarity of all of this messaging, it's almost as if, you know, an email went out and everyone was like, okay, let's get on it. Let's all, you know, just tweet out the very same thing that the last person tweeted out, which is exactly what they said they were going to do at that Daily Coast thing in March of 2017. But these are media organizations doing this. They could have picked up the phone and called that guy, the, the the doctor who claimed that he had this information. They could have asked for evidence that backed up his claim. They could have called the hospital and gotten their comment on it. They could have called a local medical association or the or, or the, um, the the medical licensing board in Oklahoma and gotten their reaction. They didn't. All the way down the line, all of these media institutions did not do that. So it's no wonder we don't have trust in media. You shouldn't trust media. They are actively, not just not just uh, around the edges, they are actively at the very heart of things trying to deceive us. There's, there, there's no other way to look at what happened with this story and not come to any other conclusion. I mean, you're welcome to. I mean, there's there's all kinds of things. There's all kinds of crazy things that that that, that you know you're, you're you're allowed to think whatever you want to think. But uh, just looking at this rationally and doing the math, uh, this looks to me like an intentional effort to deceive the public. And what are they deceiving the public about? When you get to the root of all of this, we are talking about early treatment of COVID-19. And it's not just ivermectin. It is whole protocols. And there's different protocols. You don't even have to use ivermectin if you don't want to use ivermectin. And by the way, that is a human drug made for humans. Uh, people who are going to a farm supply store for ivermectin are people who don't have doctors and can't afford medicine. My God. If you're for Medicare for all, if you supported Bernie Sanders, and if you're at all uh, marginally calling yourself a Democrat these days who is interested in, in, in universal health care or whatever it's called, single payer, whatever you want to say about it, or even Obamacare, access to health care is a crisis in this country, along with trust in media. So I don't hold it against anybody if they are, you know, the only way that they can make this work, the only way they can stay alive during this pandemic is to go and get a veterinary preparation of a drug that they otherwise would not have access to for lack of being able to see a doctor and for lack of just having the money to do it. These are people who just want to make sure that their parents don't die or their children don't die. Holy cow, who have we become? That, that that is something that you scoff at, that that is something that you laugh at. It makes me sad. It makes me very sad. That's not how liberals behave. That's not how progressives behave. That's, that's not how we treat people. And the Rolling Stones story wasn't the other, only one. There was, there was another angle that they were pushing yesterday, which was that uh, calls to poison control were just astronomical and this story again was picked up without any kind of critical uh, thinking at all so 
let me read to you what the initial story was. Okay, this is Mary Beth Pfeiffer, who is a writer, and uh, she's on Twitter. She has an account that is very active on this subject right now. Mary Beth Pfeiffer is at Mary Beth PF. And she noticed yesterday that uh, CDC put out a health advisory on ivermectin uh, earlier that week, and then CDC said poison control saw a three-fold increase in ivermectin calls over the pre-pandemic baseline. So she says, let's dissect this. What, what was the baseline? Uh, calls for ivermectin did see a rapid increase, up 184% from January through August 2019, but the baseline was from one to two calls. <laughs> So if the baseline is one or two people, you know, from 2019 having a concern about ivermectin, if that is 184% larger, then that you're 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 talking about what 23, 24 people. So the baseline, if you look 2019, 2020, 2021 on uh, calls to the CD uh, to the poison control. Uh, you got about an average of, I'd say, 45 to 50 calls uh, a month about ivermectin. Uh, in 2021, with all of this propaganda war about it and these screaming headlines about people overdosing on horse paste and all this craziness, those calls increased to about nine, 97 per month. These are small numbers, and when you're doing fun with numbers and you have small numbers that you're working with, you know, if, if one basket has 40 apples in it and the basket two years later has 90 apples in it, you know, during much different circumstances, <laughs> then that information about those two baskets is completely meaningless. And this is a this is a part of of critical thinking skills that I think that that people really overlook is you know when you look at any claim the very first question you should be asking yourself is it, does this claim provide any meaningful information don't go try to you know figure out if if their data is right or if the math adds up or any of that until you answer the question. Is this a meaningful story? And what Mary Beth Pfeiffer did, that, I, that is what everybody should do, is she looked at this, this bulletin that they put out, and she said this, this is meaningless on its face because you're talking about such low numbers of people uh, and such vastly different circumstances. Now that's an example of somebody doing critical thinking right. Now here's another couple of statistics that are really important. June to July the effectiveness of the vaccines. So people who are double vaccinated, uh, in June, you had a 94% chance of not contracting COVID. In July, you had a 65% chance of not co contracting COVID. We, the effectiveness of the vaccines decrease over time, and that's built in, they just decrease over time, and also we're getting new variants. And, and, and so there's breakthrough uh, cases and, and and right now our breakthrough rate is all the way up at 75 percent 
And the other thing about that that is that is very disturbing is that they're also uh, hiding the information about variants. So if you get tested for COVID, you're not going to find out what kind of variant you have. You're not going to find out, you know, any kind of detailed information. It's just a yes, no. Do you got it? Do you not? You know, blah, that's all. And that's if you could find a test. Because uh, 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 another account on Twitter, somebody I know, Wooby Tuesday, uh, was talking about how her children are affected by this. Uh, they're uh, on day eight of being back to school. On the eighth day back to school, they called a quarantine and said that people, the, the kids were all exposed to COVID. All of the tests, the home tests were sold out and had been sold out for three days. There was no openings in the school testing. The hospital had a three-day wait, um, and then the public health department said, well, you have to either go to the school test or the hospital sites. So here was a parent with a child who had the school had said that they had been exposed to COVID-19 and could not get a COVID test at all, you know, let alone a variant test, but just couldn't get a test. Now, if you can't get a test and you can't know if you're positive for COVID, then you can't start any treatment. And if you're going by what the media says, there really isn't an, an early intervention. You just got to wait until your blood oxygen is 85 and then drive yourself to the hospital, you know, humming the death march where you're going to go on a ventilator. I mean, th those are your choices. Unless, unless you get early treatment. Now I'm going to play you really quick here. I'm going to play you a clip of Dr. Pierre Corey of Frontline Critical Care for COVID-19. He's a lifelong Democrat. Here's what he had to say to the Senate Committee on uh, Homeland Security. Have months. We have 100,000 patients in the hospital right now dying. I'm a lung specialist. I'm an ICU specialist. I've cared for more dying COVID patients than anyone can imagine. They're dying because they can't breathe. They can't breathe. They're on high flow <clears throat> oxygen delivery devices. They're on non-invasive ventilators and or they're sedated and paralyzed and attached to mechanical ventilators that breathe for them. And I watch them every day. They die. By the time they get me in the ICU, they're already dying. They're almost impossible to recover. Early treatment is key. We need to offload the hospitals. We are tired. I can't keep doing this. If you look at my manuscript, and if I have to go back to work next week, any further deaths are going to be needless deaths, and I cannot be traumatized by that. I cannot keep caring for patients when I know that they could have been saved with earlier treatment, and that drug that will treat them and prevent the hospitalization is ivermectin. This is, I am here today, I'm calling to action. The NIH, their last recommendation was August 27th. August 27th. I want to be clear. I am not here as a politician or a dramatist or, or sensationalizing what I'm recommending. I'm going to be very clear and very simple. All I ask is for the NIH to review our data that we've compiled of all of the emerging data. We have almost 30 studies. Everyone is reliably and reproducibly positive, showing the dramatic impacts of ivermectin. Please, I'm just asking that they review our manuscript. It is a serious manuscript by serious, highly experienced physicians and researchers. We, we have... I cannot call on more credibility than we have. We're not just a, a random doctor who's saying that we have a cure. I don't want to say I have a cure. I'm just asking review our data. We have immense amounts of data to show that ivermectin must be 
implemented and implemented now. Senator, the last thing I want to say is, you know who's dying here? It's, it's our African-American and Latino and elderly. It's some of the most disadvantaged and impoverished members of our society. They are dying at higher rates than anyone else. It's the most, it's, it's, it's the most. All right. He goes on about that, and it's very important. But I need to let you guys go on Blog Talk Radio right now. And for the rest of y'all listening on Anchor and on Apple uh, through the Lefty Lounge link, we are picking up from here. Okay, so you guys at Blog Talk, come on over to the Lefty Lounge and get the rest of the show. Okay, and you can pick up the rest of Brooke's show on the Lefty Lounge. So now we're moving on. All right, this is, you could consider it multiple justice reports this week. There's so much going on. This is insanity. So as I said before, we're going to move on now. And, you know, I have to introduce this. Make no mistake about it. Just when you thought the GOP couldn't sink any lower in terms of lunacy, in terms of intellectual incompetence and massive moral bankruptcy, they prove us wrong. They can sink lower. Between the anti-mask and the anti-vaccine lunacy, and then you have the Texas abortion law, our Constitution is in jeopardy. It's not, not only is our health in jeopardy, but our Constitution, our rights are also. So we're going to move ahead first, though, and, and again, there's so much, there's so much to this. All right. Bottom line is this: we have the COVID lunacy on one side, and what Brooke said is is correct. All right. I don't know if I agree with the doctor on ivermectin, but I do know that whether or not you survive depends on early treatment, and early treatment is virtually impossible for most people to get, unless, of course, you're affluent, you're wealthy. That's it. And we need to do something about this. So we have that. We're going to be talking about the Texas abortion law and the, the, the actual danger it poses to a whole host of constitutional rights that nobody really thought about. Well, first, we're going to start with the uh, latest Biden, President Biden's executive order on vaccines. And a, a lot of conservatives are calling it out as a mandate. It isn't, it isn't, all right? Uh, basically, what it says is if you're going to do business with the federal government, either as a federal employee or an employee of one of many federal agencies, uh, I would also think that if you're an employee of a public school, Public schools receive federal aid, so I think it would encompass that as well. Or if you receive funding, such as Medicare, Medicaid, that means uh, physicians' offices and a lot of hospitals. It also means if you're a contractor as well. If you do any of these things and you want to continue to accept federal dollars, your employees have 75 days from the date of the executive order to become fully vaccinated or they're fired. That's it. End of story. And 
then it goes on to say that companies with at least 100 employees or more, there it's the same situation. And when I hear these conservatives gripe about how this is, you know, forcing us to get a vaccine, no, it's not. It's not forcing anybody to do anything. It's merely giving you a consequence. See, the problem with these ultra-conservatives, these Trumpers, is they want to do whatever they bloody well want to do, and they don't want any negative consequences. Now, that's not liberty that they're declaring that they need. That's adolescence. So here we have more adolescent behavior here in my home state of Missouri. It turns out that it isn't just Governor DeSantis that hates mask mandates or, or Governor Abbott, but also here in Missouri, Governor Mike Parson. And this was an article written by Natalie Preeb. Uh, it was basically Friday the 10th, the day before 9-11, in the Hill. And the headline is, Missouri Governor Considering Special Session to Fight Biden's Vaccine Mandate. Now, basically, Governor Parson in Missouri is another Trumper. Make no mistake about it. Uh, and a lot of people overlook Governor Parson because he doesn't appear to be as obviously arrogant or obnoxious as, say, DeSantis. But make no mistake about it. Mike Parson, in my opinion, is just fascism with a smiley face. And he is a Trumper through and through. Now, this, he's considering holding a special legislative session to fight the new rule mandating COVID-19 vaccinations or weekly testing for employers with 100 or more employees. Now, so this isn't covering all of it, at least according to the Hill. Now, you have to understand, thing. while each state has a right to appeal federal law, you can fight out in court. Given what's happening in Missouri with the GOP, there's this attitude that state law should supersede federal law, truth be told. Uh, we have an attorney general here, Eric Schmidt, that filed a lawsuit against school districts that have their own mask mandates. Now, make, make no mistake about it, this, these are people that basically think the rules go for everyone but them. It's, it's just, and, and with Eric Schmidt, and we'll talk about that another time, um, I know there's going to be civil rights cases coming his way because children with various disabilities and that are medically fragile need that mask mandate so they can attend school safely. Otherwise, that is a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act and known as an OCR complaint, Office of Civil Rights. But let's go back to Governor Parson. So Parson is considering, and if he says he's considering holding a special session to fight the, um, the exec Biden's executive rule, it's going to happen, all right? And I guarantee you, it really wasn't Mike Parson's idea. It was probably either Eric Schmidt, the AG, or somebody else whispering in his ear. So Parson uh, was quoted by the Kansas City Star um, as saying the following, quote, I don't plan on letting that happen in Missouri. I think the president is totally wrong on the policy he's setting forth. And so he's going to call this special session because, you know, this is Missouri's just as backwards as Florida when it comes to this kind of stuff. And again, according to the Hill article, this is saying that the special session would fight the part of the rule that demands 
vaccinations or weekly testing for employers with 100 or more employees. Now, as for uh, federal employees or uh, basically groups that get federal dollars, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, whatever, um, I wouldn't be shocked if, if Parson held another special session and basically said we're going to cut loose federal dollars because this is about getting his way. Now, the Senate Majority Leader in Missouri is another Republican named Caleb Robin, and he tweeted that the state legislature should act ASAP as as possible. Now, it should be noted that Mike Parson, the governor of Missouri, Caleb Rowden, who's the Missouri Senate Majority Leader, and uh, the, uh, the president, Speaker Pro Tem of the House, uh, John Weeman, they are all members of ALEC, which is the American Legislative Exchange Council. Okay? And Parson and Rowden specifically are, uh, and I have the documentation, are ALEC, what they call scholarship beneficiaries. So basically, ALEC is this bill mill, and they give these, these politicians basically paid vacations. They call them scholarships. Um, so basically, it's legalized bribery. That's what it is. And keep in mind, Missouri has uh, an increase in COVID cases, and that's according to the Associated Press. Um, and so... You know, once again, this is what's happening in Parson. Now, you have to remember also in Missouri, like in Florida, the uh, there was an anti-mask mandate law that was signed by Mike Parson this past June, and it is also modeled on the same model bill written by Alex. Uh, and basically, that bill says that if individual municipalities want to pass their own mask mandate, they have to get permission from the state. Talk about legislative power overreach, but they did. Um, and once again, the reason I mentioned ALEC is because none of this is happening in a vacuum. This COVID denialism, the anti-vax, the anti-mask hysteria, it is being funded by big money. And ALEC, which is a bill mill that writes, there's a reason why they said last week, there's a reason why these anti-mask and these anti-vaccine bills all look almost identical because they have the same origin. They are from the model bill written by the lawyers of ALEC. And where does ALEC get the majority of its funding? <laughs> Not hard to guess. Koch Family Foundations and similarly Koch-funded PACs. Koch spelled K-O-C-H. Okay, this is billionaire money that is funding, I won't even call it misinformation, funding these lies that are putting all of us in mortal jeopardy, including our children. So what's happening in Missouri? Yes, we have an attorney general that's fighting mask mandates in schools as well, just like you have a governor in Florida doing the same thing. So nothing is sacred, not even our children. Okay, so I don't know. When are we as a society going to acknowledge that these campaign contributions, these scholarship, they paid vacation trips, any other monetary gift or in-kind contribution, whether it's vacation, whatever, when are we going to acknowledge that these are, though technically legal, call them what they are, bribes. Okay, so that's number one. Now, that 
is pretty obvious there, and you'll be hearing more about it later. Now we have from BuzzFlash, from our friend, the editor of Buzz, BuzzFlash, Mark Carlin, a piece that he wrote, and it published on 9-11. And it's about how these GOP governors need to be apprehended and criminally charged for their what can only be called their criminally negligent COVID policies. And the headline is, Greg Abbott wanted for voluntary homicide, bounty of $1 million for his apprehension. Now, obviously, Carlin is mocking the Texas abortion law where basically any, any jerk can stalk a woman and collect a $10,000 bounty. So he's turning it around, which I find rather amusing. But he comes out and says, Greg Abbott, the Republican governor of Texas, I'm reading straight from it, is guilty of voluntary manslaughter and federal law should be invoked with Congress passing a $1 million bounty for his apprehension. Carlin goes on to say, he is guilty of intentionally enabling the latest surge of COVID infections and deaths through his executive order against masks. Okay? And I agree with him. He goes on to say that same bounty really needs to be applied, should be applied to the arrest of Florida GOP Governor Ron DeSantis as well. And then he adds that other governors, like other Republican governors, like Kristi Noem of South Dakota, um, should also be apprehended that the Delta surge, you know, again, why is Delta surging in these other variants? Because there's no mask mandate. And it's a shame we have to turn to that. And we have to turn to that because we have a bunch of alleged adults behaving like two-year-olds throwing a tantrum. I mean, I've seen on Facebook and on other social media where these privileged white people are literally invoking um, Nuremberg, invoking the idea of the Gestapo because they're temporarily inconvenienced by having to wear a piece of cloth covering their nose and mouth. Now, as an actual Jew, I am incredibly outraged by that comparison. How dare they? How dare they? We wouldn't have to do any of this if we had a sense of responsibility and a sense of, of duty to our fellow human beings, but we don't. Instead, you see alleged adults behaving badly. You see, as Dr. Rashad Ritchie on The Young Turk says, he calls them COVID Karens. There was this one woman it was in, I think, Lincoln, Nebraska, and she thought it was funny to cough on people. She goes, <coughs> and she's following a woman around with her daughter and just cough, getting in her private space and, and coughing on them. And once again, nothing really happened to this woman. And when you looked up her particular personal information, here she was, highly educated, worked for a big IT company called SAP. Once again, we have adults behaving like nasty two-year-olds, throwing a huge tantrum with a diaper full of shit. That's it. And because of that, now we have to do something that's more, more dire because when you refuse to mask, when you refuse to fully vaccinate, you can pretty much guarantee that more people will come down with COVID and more people will die. That's it. And if we don't get enough people that fully vaccinated, eventually, and it's already happening actually, more variants will, will 
come about that will render the vaccines we have ineffective. You know, the GOP has become a cult of death. So, you know, once again, uh, this is what Carlin's talking about. He's totally right. He goes on to say that these GOP governors do meet the actual criteria of prosecution under federal law for the minimum charge of manslaughter. And then he lists the actual U.S. Code criteria for the crime of manslaughter. I'm going to read this. Voluntary manslaughter upon a sudden quarrel or heat of passion, involuntary manslaughter in the commission of an unlawful act not amounting to a felony, or in the commission in an unlawful manner or without due caution and circumspection of a lawful act which might produce death. B, within the special maritime and territorial jurisdiction of the U.S. Anyway, it goes on. Whoever is guilty of voluntary manslaughter shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 15 years or both. Okay. Whoever is guilty of involuntary manslaughter shall be fined upon this title or imprisoned not more than eight years or both. And then he goes on to add that there really shouldn't be any, and I would add too, there shouldn't be any qualified immunity from criminal prosecution from these governors that have pursued a path, uh, a policy uh, regarding COVID that is criminally negligent. It just is. In fact, when it, the policy regarding children in our schools, you know, we talked about this before on the show. You know, when Governor DeSantis and these other GOP governors claim, and, and the Missouri AG as well, that parents have a right to decide whether or not they're going to vaccinate their child, whether or not they're going to mask them. Making it sound like a parent can do whatever they want to their child. That's not really true. A parent doesn't have the right to lock a child in a hot car on a 100-degree day and leave them there. A parent doesn't have a right to abuse their child or neglect them or recklessly endanger them. So when parents say that they don't want to mask their child and their child's too young to receive a vaccine, uh, no, they don't have that right. They don't. That's reckless endangerment. And I want to know why the Division of Social Services, with all their social workers in each state of the union, isn't coming after those governors and those parents with basically the abuse, neglect, and endangerment hotline. Because this is child abuse, neglect, and reckless endangerment. I don't know if maybe the people running those agencies care more about their jobs than they do about children, but this should be happening. And we talked about this before. So getting back to the Carlin piece, he's basically saying that all these GOP governors, and I'm going to include the AGs in it, should be held criminally liable for their COVID policies. Carlin goes on to say that the DOJ should propose legislation, Congress should pass it, and this is funny, well, it's sad but funny, that allows citizens to hold Governor Abbott and the other death-spreading governors accountable for $1 million each, as well as jail time. Okay. He goes on to say that enablers of the GOP governors should also be forced to pay citizen bounty hunters and the, the $1 million penalty or portion thereof. Now, part of this is satirical, but it's not totally wrong. These GOPers that are pushing reckless, pay, reckless policies 
regarding COVID that are right in defiance of accepted medical practice, yes, they should be held criminally liable. There's no guess here. And, and in the near future, we're going to have Carlin on our show. He's really, really a gem. So that's what Mark Carlin was talking about. And, and again, when we're talking about COVID, it doesn't matter whether you're a conservative or a progressive. What matters is that these, and it's not the Democratic governors, these Republicans are pushing policies that are not only inciting people to do reckless and crazy things and infect others, as well as not protect themselves, but they're also pursuing policies that are endangering everybody, but especially our children. It takes a special type of moral bankruptcy to be willing to endanger somebody else's children. It's really that simple. And again, I'll reiterate, no, parents do not have the right to do anything they want with their children. It's not true. And when you have a, a pandemic such as COVID that is highly contagious, airborne, and you have a group of people, namely children under the age of 12, that cannot be vaccinated yet, then yes, you do need a mask mandate. If the children don't die, they will become very ill, and then they will bring it home to the parents. So I don't know, does Governor, is Governor DeSantis ready for a nation of orphans? I wonder. Uh, but this is something we have to consider. And these Republicans, they're not being questioned hard enough in the mainstream corporate media. Because this wearing a mask has been the accepted medical protocol for any airborne pathogen for decades now. So all of a sudden it becomes this big outrageous thing. Why? You know, the question also is, if we were talking about, if we substituted the word COVID and inserted the word tuberculosis or smallpox or bubonic plague, which are all airborne pathogens, Nobody would be arguing against wearing masks. Nobody would be arguing against taking a vaccine if one was available. But with COVID, they're arguing. Because this isn't about COVID. In my opinion, this is about incipient white supremacy and total privilege. This is about them showing their, their allegiance to an idiot like Trump because Trump is still running things behind the scenes in the GOP. Ron DeSantis is evil, in my opinion. He's a criminal, in my opinion, but he's not stupid. He's an alum of the Harvard Law School. He knows better. But again, I like Carlin's take on it. I do think that when politicians pursue uh, policies that are not only against public interest, but are reckless and endanger people's lives, in direct defiance of what is considered the standard of care, then yes, they should be held criminally liable, just like anyone else. Let's move on, folks. So now we're going to the justice report. Everybody's been talking about the Texas abortion law. And it goes much farther than just abortion. So whether you're pro-choice, anti-choice, whatever, 
This is a stealth move, people. And it's a stealth move that the Supreme Court, those conservatives on the Supreme Court, allowed to happen. Basically, the conservatives, um, Kavanaugh, um, uh, oh, Lord, all the conservatives on the court, they had their Pontius Pilate moment. They washed their hands of it, and they're letting the state-level GOP do their dirty work for them. So first, let's talk about there was a scathing dissent from one of the few decent justices on the SCOTUS, uh, Sonia Sotomayor. And she said, Texas now has abortion bounty hunters. Okay, here we go. Um, Order is stunning. Presented with an app, I'm just reading straight from it. This is a portion. Presented with an application to enjoin a, let me start again, okay? So this is as published in the, um, I believe this is, I'm sorry folks, who's the Guardian. And this is a section of the actual dissenting statement. I'm reading it as is. Sonia Sotomayor. The court's order is stunning. Presented with an application to enjoin a flagrantly unconstitutional law engineered to prohibit women from exercising their constitutional rights and evade judicial scrutiny. A majority of justices have opted to bury their heads in the sand. End quote. Now that quote's been going around for a while now, and everybody in the mainstream media has talked about, you know, how Sotomayor called out called out the conservatives on the court, uh, how they basically buried their heads in the sand. But that's not the important part of that statement. The important part of these statements is not only how this prohibits women from exercising their constitutional rights, but more importantly, quote, this is the three words that are important, evade judicial scrutiny. Okay? So it's not like the court is actually endorsing the Texas law. They're just basically refusing to look at it. And if there's no judicial scrutiny, then there's no harm, no foul. She's literally accusing the conservatives on the court of abdicating the responsibility, and she's right. So that's the key phrase, that the, the conservative justices are allowing these, this law to go by and evade judicial scrutiny. I'm going to go on with reading this now. Quote, last night the court silently acquiesced in a state's enactment of a law that flouts nearly 50 years of federal precedent. Today, the court belatedly explains that it declined to grant relief because of procedural complexities of the state's own invention. Because the court's failure to act regards rewards tactics, let me start again. Because the court's failure to act rewards tactics designed to avoid judicial review and inflict significant harm on the applicants and on women seeking abortions in Texas, I dissent. This is a continuation of this idea that they're evading judicial scrutiny. She's saying they just set aside 50 years of precedent, and that's what all the court's decisions are based on. We base whether something is constitutional on precedent, what preceded, what came before. And she also called out the conservatives saying, because they claim there were procedural complexities, 
okay? So basically she's accusing the conservatives of saying, well, it was just too difficult for them to understand the law, so they're just going to allow this law to evade judicial scrutiny. It is basically a SCOTUS version of the teacher and me coming out, the dog ate my homework. On with more of what Sotomayor had to say. Quote, in May 2021, the Texas legislature enacted SB 8. The act, which took effect statewide at midnight on 1 September, makes it unlawful for, physici for physicians to perform abortions if they either detect cardiac activity in an embryo or fail to perform a test to detect such activity. This equates to a near categorical ban on abortions beginning six weeks after a woman's last menstrual period before many women realize they are pregnant and months before fetal viability. This is, end quote, so this is important because the law has always been about fetal viability. This is months before then. This is definitely, definitely defying Roe. According to the applicants who are abortion providers and advocates in Texas, the act immediately prohibits care for at least 85% of Texas abortion patients and will force many abortion clinics to close, end quote. I'm going to go on. Here's what Sotomayor said, more of it. Quote, the act is clearly unconstitutional under existing precedents. End quote. It's a perfectly clear statement. Okay, to go on. Quote, the respondents do not even try to argue otherwise, nor could they. No federal appellate court has upheld such a comprehensive prohibition on abortion before viability under current law. The Texas legislature was well aware of this binding precedent. To circumvent it, the legislature took the extraordinary step, step of enlisting private citizens to do what the state could not. The act authorizes any private citizen to file a lawsuit against any person who provides an abortion in violation of the act, aids or abets such an abortion, including by paying for it, regardless of whether they know the abortion is prohibited under the act or even intends to engage in such conduct. Courts are required to enjoin the defendant from engaging in these actions in the future and to award the private citizen plaintiff at least $10,000 in statutory damages for each forbidden abortion performed or aided by the defendant. In effect, the Texas legislature has deputized the state citizens as bounty hunters, offering them cash prizes for civilly prosecuting their neighbors' medical procedures. Okay? The legislature fashioned this scheme because federal constitutional challenges to state laws ordinarily are brought against state officers who are in charge of enforcing by pro prohibiting state officers from enforcing the act directly and relying instead on citizen bounty hunters, this legis the legislation sought to make it more complicated for federal courts to enjoin the act on a statewide basis. Taken together, the act is a breathtaking act of defiance of the Constitution, of this court's precedence, and of the rights of women seeking abortions throughout Texas. Okay, so... That was the main parts of it. And it's really important, this idea about deputizing private people. So basically, this has another layer that you have to go through if you want to attack this Texas abortion law. And it potentially could, this same, this same strategy could be used to attack the rights of other minorities that these religious conservatives despise. 
And we're going to get into that right now. Now, uh, there was an op-ed, an editorial, from UC Berkeley Law School Dean Erwin Shermerinsky. We talked about Shermerinsky before on this program. He is brilliant. He takes the law and he demystifies it and just tells you what it is. So this is about the even more insidious danger that the Texas law poses to every constitutional right we have. This strategy that Texas used in SB 8, in the abortion law, could be used by conservatives, especially religious conservatives, to nullify the rights of others, whether it is the right of gays to marry, gays and lesbians, um, maybe the right to even criticize the government. Because you really wouldn't, if you wanted to challenge it, you're not attacking the government, you're being attacked by a private citizen. So let's go into it. The op-ed's title, How the Texas Abortion Law Could Spawn Threats to Other Constitutional Rights. This is, he just comes on and says, that the threat posed by the Supreme Court's refusal okay, to block the Texas abortion law goes far beyond reproductive rights, and it does. Make no mistake about it, Sotomayor was right. This is about the conservatives in the, on the court abdicating their responsibility. Shermerinsky goes on to say, quote, it opens the door to insidious copycat laws that could be used to attack other constitutional rights. He goes on to say, quote, instead of requiring state prosecutors to enforce this clearly unconstitutional law, it gives private citizens the right to sue anyone who performs AIDS or abets an abortion or intends to do so, and then they get a $10,000 bounty. Shermerinsky goes on to say, quote, because this law relies only on private civil lawsuits, a person targeted by this law cannot take the state or state officials to court to strike down the law. It goes on. The state of Texas cannot be sued in federal or state court because it has sovereign immunity, and it maintains that its officials cannot be sued because they are not involved in enforcing the law. Okay, end quote. So this is a really crazy twist, but they're not the ones enforcing law, private citizens are. So how does this work out then? Well, here's how it happens. Anybody who is, who is sued by a private individual in Texas because of this new Texas abortion law, whether you're a doctor, uh, maybe you're the person that paid for it, whatever, uh, you're targeted in a civil lawsuit, you can only challenge the law's constitutionality as a defendant in a civil lawsuit. So in other words, you have to actually, if you're a provider, an abortion provider, if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, if you're somebody who paid for it, whatever, and you're sued, the only way you can challenge this law is, one, you have to be sued civilly first. And you have to be sued for money damages in Texas state court. And then you have to argue as a defense that the law is unconstitutional. Then if a state judge rules that the, basically rules that, yeah, it's unconstitutional in the defendant's favor and strikes down the Texas abortion law, then the case goes directly to the Supreme Court. And this is very costly. I mean, how many average people, you know, let's say you have a friend and your friend has been abused by the man in her life. And now she's pregnant. 
and she wants to get an abortion because the pregnancy is a result of rape. And you say, but she can't afford it. So you pay for it. You can be sued. The average person can't afford the cost of this lawsuit. They just can't. And so this is how they stop it. And you chances are you might win your lawsuit, you might might lose. And if you have several lawsuits against you, how many people can afford $10,000 a whack on top of attorney fees? They can't. Now, they wouldn't sue the woman seeking the abortion, just anyone who dares to help her. My, I just had a thought, isn't that a lot like the old, um, oh gosh, the old slave laws, remember? It wasn't bad. It was bad enough that we had slavery. That was evil. But anybody who was an abolitionist that tried to help a slave escape, they were attacked by the law as well. This looks a lot like that, doesn't it, folks? But this strategy is a roadmap for a lot of other things, too, not just abortion rights. Okay? So Chermerinsky points out, gives you some examples. So give you another example. Let's, let's take this basic strategy in the Texas abortion law, which basically is private citizens that are essentially deputized to sue anybody who provides abortions. Okay? You can't go after the government. Let's take it and let's change the topic from abortion to gay and lesbian couples having the constitutionally protected right to marry. Okay? The Supreme Court's rule that gay and lesbian couples have the constitutional right to marry. But if a state, if the conser- religious conservatives in the state really wanted to go after gay and lesbians, gay and lesbian couples, they could follow the, the Texas law, the same strategy. They could outlaw same-sex marriage. And then they could allow private citizens to sue anyone who performs the same-sex wedding ceremony for money damages. Those of you that like handguns, the same thing could happen. A state could, even though the Supreme Court's ruled that the Second Amendment protects the right to own and and possess uh, firearms, a state could ban handguns and then authorize citizens to bring civil suits against anyone who sells you a handgun. In fact, according to Shermerinsky, a state could, for instance, uh, enact a law banning criticism of the governor and then deputize and allow any private person to sue the critic for money. This is how this Texas abortion law poses such, the strategy poses such an extreme danger to all our constitutional rights. Now, the asinine reasoning of the conservative majority on the SCOTUS, on the Supreme Court, is the following, according to Shermerinsky. Under the Supreme Court's reasoning, again, the only way to challenge these unconstitutional laws, first you've got to break the law. Then you get sued by a private citizen, maybe more than one. And then you fight the statute's constitutionality. It is, and, and basically... The very people who wrote and passed the law, they can't be sued. So you have to go through a civil lawsuit first, risk financial ruin, before you can challenge the constitutionality of it. 
you know, even John Roberts, the Chief Justice, who, make no mistake about it, he may side with the liberals on the court occasionally, but believe me, he is, he has always been a racist, in my opinion. He has always been a misogynist. But he's lawyer enough to know that this really poses a dreadful danger. And Chief Justice John Roberts joined with the liberals in dissent and wrote the following, quote, the statutory scheme before the court is not only unusual, but unprecedented. The legislature has imposed a prohibition on abortion after roughly six weeks and then essentially delegated enforcement of that prohibition to the populace at large. The desired consequence appears to be to insulate the state from responsibility for implementing and enforcing the regulatory regime, end quote. And he's right. You have to remember, the very, according to Shemarinsky, and I agree, the, the very foundation, the very principle upon all American jurisprudence is that all our laws, criminal and civil, must comply with the Constitution. And these state statutes that prohibit abortion after the sixth week of pregnancy, which again is in defiance of accepted Supreme Court ruling, or for our law of same-sex marriage, as the Supreme Court says the Constitution permits, or forbid criticizing the governor, again, you have a right to do that, the First Amendment right, First Amendment right, they all blatantly violate the Constitution. And it doesn't matter what you use as an enforcement mechanism. Whatever enforcement mechanism you use, civil or civil law or lawsuit or whatever, that does not reduce, that does not lessen the fact that these laws that they're pushing are unconstitutional. And yet the Supreme Court, the conservatives on the court, punted to the state courts, and they're allowing them to use civil lawsuits to invalidate many settled constitutional rights. This is the conservative radicals on the Supreme Court abdicating their responsibilities. And as Sotomayor said in her dissent, quote, it cannot be the case that a state can evade federal judicial scrutiny by outsourcing the enforcement of unconstitutional laws to its citizenry. I'm going to read that one again because that hits it right on that. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote in her dissent, and God bless her, quote, it cannot be the case that a state can evade federal judicial scrutiny by outsourcing the enforcement of unconstitutional laws to its citizenry. In other words, no, the state cannot deputize essentially a litigious lynch mob as a way to justify what are unconstitutional laws. Okay? And Shermerinsky's right. You know, another way to put it is that this is, this Texas abortion law, it changes who is standing to bring a lawsuit. You know, in the past, you had to prove that you were actually damaged by something. Now you don't. And this is something that is truly truly scary, okay? Um, John Michaels, uh, who is a professor at UCLA Law, uh, made an example 
of what's going on in Tennessee, where there, there are students and teachers and employees of public schools that, quote, can sue schools if they share a bathroom with a transgendered person. And that's as documented by the Tennessean.com. And to hear Professor Michaels, he said, quote, it's a way of backdooring and winking while constitutional violations are occurring. It is compromising democracy, end quote. And he's right. Just this. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about this. Okay. Um, this also reverses what Republicans have traditionally said about tort law or contract law. You know, this really is going to embolden, especially religious conservatives, all right, that want to push their own version of, the, of Christian theocratic fascism on the rest of us. And, and my attitude is, you want to sue me? Bring it on. We'll fight it. The Constitution has to stand for something. This is really really outrageous. And the fact that the Supreme Court, the conservatives on the court, abdicated their responsibility is vile. Okay? This is just outrageous. No doubt about it. So now, that's what Shermerinsky and others had to say about this. The Texan abortion, Texas abortion law is incredibly dangerous. All right? I could see well, criticizing a governor, for instance, that's, in, that's endangering free speech rights. I could see religious conservatives um, pushing prayer, Christian prayers, on religious minorities in school. I've been there and done that. It is not right. Um, and you have to wonder, where does all this come from? Do you honestly believe that the state legislators came up with this strategy all on their own? Doubtful. There is a trail of breadcrumbs to be followed. And we will talk about it again. And a lot of those breadcrumbs come from model bills, again, from ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. And we're going to be talking about them more. Um, it's about time to hold these lawyers that abuse their privileges to hold them accountable. Just is. So let's move on, folks. Now we're going to talk about what's going to happen or what may happen next Saturday. You know, we know September 18th there is a rally um, that is going to be held, not just in D.C., but all over. There's going to be other rallies all over the country. And this is basically... These are insurrectionists. They are protesting the fact that January 6th insurrectionists, some of them were charged and are being detained in prison, as well they should be. And once again, this is being headlined by white supremacist domestic terrorists such as the Proud Boys. Okay? There's another group helping to sponsor called White Lives Matter. They've been listed by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a hate group. So there was a piece from Roll Call, and next week we're going to be talking about what happens, what happens or 
what may or may not happen next Saturday. We'll all see, okay? Um, this is a piece that was written by Chris Marquette, and it was posted September 8th. The headline is, as September 18th rally approaches, violent language ramps up online. Capitol Police Chief will brief congressional leaders about the situation. And we've, we've seen, you know, people on the mainstream news, Congressman Adam Kinzinger comes to mind. He's a Republican, but he served in the military talking about have they been apprised of what to expect next week, the fence is going up again, all of this. Let's just call it out for what it is. This is white supremacy and neo-Nazism on parade, period. There's no guesswork here. And they are working hard to foment another civil war. In fact, I would argue that really a civil war never truly ended. And the racists in our midst just, can't stomach the fact that, you know, there are people of color and religious minorities that have rights as well. Okay, and then we also have major mainstream outlets like Fox News, Tucker Carlson, and others that keep pushing this narrative of lies, this poisonous narrative of lies and propaganda. So let's look at this article. So Capitol Police Chief J. Thomas Manger, um, as of September 8th, was getting ready to brief congressional leaders on this potentially violent rally. Now keep in mind, this rally is being organized by a group called Look Ahead America. And it's a group that's led by former Trump campaign employee Matt Brainerd. Now, I saw a video where Brainerd is, you know, talking about their principles and he's telling people, you know, you can't be violent, mind your manners, no political uh, paraphernalia, Trump or anything else, none. And he's doing that, in my opinion, to cover his ass, okay? I'm just going to call it out because this, you know that this is just a buildup to something worse. January 6th was a beginning. It wasn't an end. When people foment that level of hate, it doesn't go away suddenly. And this guy, you know, again, Trump is, I, I saw an article where Trump is going to be a speaker uh, at a rally in, in Georgia, I believe it is. So, you know, for the GOP to pretend, well, Trump is gone. No, he's not. No, he's not. People like DeSantis and and Abbott and, and um the House Minority Leader, they all go down to Mar-a-Lago and they kiss Trump's ring. You know, those of you pick up that's a mafioso reference, yes it is. And I take, I will, I will not apologize for it, it's appropriate. So there's been a lot of discussion on this far-right site called, known as 4chan, and, and that includes calls to, quote, do justice against, quote, local Jews and corrupted officials. Uh, it also said the demonstration is going to be used as a vehicle to participate in violent acts against, quote, local Jewish centers and liberal churches, end quote, all the while, while law enforcement is distracted with their nonsense. There was another comment from the thread that reads, quote, 
I will be there with my AR-15, even though legally I can't have one F blank, 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 the demon rats, end quote. Okay. Again, Brainard, who is leading the group Look Ahead America, you know, he asked for a permit in Union Square, um, and he's telling people no violence. Yeah, right. Um, but there's more. Okay, now there were nine members of Congress that were invited to attend the rally. Seven have turned it down. Not out of any sudden sense of, of ethics, just because they don't want the law looking at them too closely. Uh, the ones that turned it down are Ted Cruz, Tommy Tuberville, Mike Lee, uh, Louis Gohmert, Lauren Bobert, and Madison Cawthorn. Um, CQ roll call hasn't verified whether Paul Gosar is going to attend or not. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates have not said whether they're going to attend one way or another. Make a mistake about it. This is an end about them being ethical. The reason why these people come back with more violence and are getting bolder is because they haven't suffered any negative consequences. That's why. We can't allow these insurrectionists and these neo-Nazis to just stalk people and attack. All right? We need to enforce the law. Uh, Brainerd also said, though, who's the head of this group, Look Ahead America, said that the rally is focused on, quote, demanding justice for political prisoners, end quote, and also for Ashley Babbitt. Now, Babbitt was the insurrectionist who was shot and killed by Capitol Police Lieutenant Michael Byrd. Now, keep in mind, I don't like seeing anyone die, but Ashley Babbitt was a military veteran. She knew how to fight. She also knew that attempting to um, break into the speaker's lobby through a broken window was an act of war. She also knew that it, she took a chance. She was on the attack, and she got shot. I have no sympathy for her. None. She chose to attack. She chose to commit treason. And the police officer defended himself and the people in that lobby, as was his duty. What was he supposed to do? Was he supposed to allow Ashley Babb to come in and start killing people? So, no, Ashley Babbitt is far from a martyr. Um, Capitol Police Assessment did reference a Twitter account which had a depiction of Ashley Babbitt dressed draped in a Kekistan flag, flag, Kekistan flag, excuse me. So there's this cartoon depiction of Ashley Babbitt. I saw it. She just looks like a little angel, and she's draped um, like a saint in this flag, but it's a Kekistan flag, and it's got a Kek, spelled K-E-K, logo, halo in the background. Now, the Southern Poverty Law Center just has basically classified Kek as, quote, a tribal marker of the alt-right. The alt-right is just another word for white supremacists and neo-Nazis. Call it out. And um, the department's intelligence memo, Capitol Police Department's intelligence memo, also noted that the image's symbolism, quote, appears to suggest that adherence to the far-right ideology 
view Babbitt as a martyr for their cause, and it may be possible these individuals are more inclined to attend events that appear to be memorializing her or the January 6th insurrection, end quote. And some people are calling the J4, the J4, J6 campaign. So it's capital J, number four, capital J, number six. And it uses a design that is very similar to what's called the blood drop cross. Now, the blood drop cross is, the department noted, is a symbol used by the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan. And the account also has, quote, a faint stylized version of the Celtic cross, which is commonly used by neo-Nazis and white supremacist extremists, end quote. That's, again, according to the Capitol Police assessment. That's not just Janine Mala saying it. Now, the document also has noted that extremist groups like Proud Boys and White Lives Matter are interested in this event. That's a toned-down way of putting it. Uh, Capitol Police also identified counter-protest planning. I can't say I blame them. Again, being somebody who lost family in the Holocaust, no, I don't think, I don't blame counter-protest. I really don't. But the fact is, this is, and even the Capitol Police, they're toning this down a bit, all right? This idea that um, Proud Boys and White Lives Matter have shown some interest. I've seen documents where the Proud Boys and White Lives Matter are sponsors. Okay? And both groups are, <coughs> excuse me, white supremacists and neo-Nazis. Make no mistake about it. When you go on the 4chan or the 8chan uh, thread, the commentary is disgusting. These people are preaching civil war. They are preparing for civil war. And they are praising Adolf Hitler. Make no mistake about it. They're praising the Ku Klux Klan. They're praising the old days of slavery. This is very deliberate. And I've done this, I've, I've made this warning before. Make no mistake about it. And this, this is something that all of us need to wake up to. They just do. You need to call out your friends and your family. And if you have friends or family and you hear this phrase, it's not that I'm racist, but or it's not that I'm religiously bigoted, but it's not that I'm homophobic, but newsflash, if they feel the need to say that, it means that they are those things. It's really that simple. And it isn't enough to say that you're not racist. You need to be anti-racist. You need to be anti-homophobe. You need to be anti-religious bigotry. You need to be anti-misogyny. There is no room for people that want to just sit and remain neutral. Because the opposition, the Proud Boys, White Lives Matter, these people have made their intent quite clear. They want nothing less than genocide. Genocide of people of color, genocide of religious minorities, genocide of the LGBTQ community, genocide of uppity women, 
genocide of religious minorities. They're quite open about it. Don't fool yourself. Just don't. And this didn't just happen during Donald Trump. The ugliness has always been there. And I've said it many times before, communities of color, especially the black community, they are the political canary in the coal mine. They're our early warning system. What happens to them eventually is going to happen to all the rest of us that are deemed not submissive enough if we're women, not straight enough, not Christian enough, and not white enough. And we need the Biden administration to strongly stand up against this. That's it. January 6th, that was not a, a, a First Amendment protest. That was a violent insurrection. Period. There's no guesswork there. And there were plenty of GOP politicians that were there that day. We're going to be talking about it more. We're also going to be identifying money groups that are helping to fund this. Now, I know there was some reporting in the mainstream media about how big corporations, like, for instance, General Motors, how they stopped funding some of the, some of the PACs that were helping to fund these insurrectionists. Well, they, they did for a while, and then they started back up again. You have to pick a side, people. Because these insurrectionists, these pro-Trump forces, I, I don't want to hear any more nonsense about how so-and-so's a nice, there are some nice Trumpers. No, they're not. If you can, if you can turn a blind eye against Racism. If you can turn a blind eye against homophobia, if you can or transphobia, if you can turn a blind eye against religious hatred, if you can turn a blind eye against misogyny, then no, you are not a good person. You are an evil bigot. I won't mince words. I just won't, and I won't make excuses for people. So next week, we're going to find out what happens on September 18th. Right now, it's all up in the air. But you know what? Even if it turns violent, it won't be the end of it. It it won't. Not until we clean out the ranks of police and get rid of all the white supremacists on every police force. Not until we start holding people accountable. That's it. We don't have to take this anymore. We shouldn't have to. So, in my opinion, September 18th is just a continuation of January 6th. And this is just a continuation of the Civil War that never really ended. Just a fact. So, with that, we'll see what happens next week. We'll just take it from there. I urge people to also, at the end of the show, to check out Brooke's program on the Lefty Lounge to hear the rest of it. I also encourage you to tune in to the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Moloff, 
We air on Thursday evenings. However, and you can all the shows on Progressive News Network are um, are archived, so you can always listen to them at any time at your leisure. Um, next Thursday, we will not have a show on EJR as it is Yom Kippur, and I do these shows live for the most part. Um, but we will be back again on September 23rd. And I encourage you to tune in and tell everyone you know. Because Progressive News Network, this is where we cover the news that a lot of mainstream media won't cover. We ask the difficult questions, and we won't stop asking them. Because you have a right to know. With that, I say good night and God bless.